July 25th, 1965, Bob Dylan takes the stage at the Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island, and 17,000 fans cheer for one of their biggest heroes. But as Dylan launches into his first song, the cheers turn into stunned silence. The usually subdued folk singer is holding an electric guitar, and he's backed by a five-piece fully electric band, and they're loud. Dylan stands under a single spotlight in a black leather jacket, furiously strumming a red Fender Stratocaster. To his right, a second guitarist plays a white Fender Telecaster, punctuating each of Dylan's lyrics with a snarling spray of bluesy notes. Fans flock to Newport each summer to hear acoustic sets from politically-minded folk singers like Joan Baez and Pete Seeger. Along with Dylan, they're part of a new folk movement whose songs have become civil rights and anti-war anthems. But tonight, Dylan seems to aggressively reject those folk roots. The fans aren't buying it. After recovering from the shock of hearing their favorite songs amped up by the electric guitar, the boos and heckles thrum low and then grow louder. We want the old Dylan. Go back to the Ed Sullivan show. Dylan and his band leave the stage after just three songs. It's a turning point for the electric guitar. Up till now, it's been mostly closely associated with lighthearted pop music. The Beach Boys, Elvis, the Beatles in their early mop-top I Wanna Hold Your Hand days. But in the hands of Dylan, the electric guitar is a weapon of mass appeal. As the anti-Vietnam War sentiment kicks into high gear, other rock artists like the Beatles, the Doors, and Jefferson Airplane play songs not to soothe, but rather to riff for social change. Marijuana and LSD are altering how music is created and experienced. Electric guitarists like Jimi Hendrix aren't just playing songs. They're deconstructing them, exploding the limits of what these relatively new instruments can do. Together, rock musicians and their electric guitars represent a new kind of youth culture, radical, rebellious. But ironically, just as 60s youth culture is embracing the electric guitar as a symbol of its restless spirit, the two biggest companies behind those guitars, Fender and Gibson, are becoming more corporate than ever before. And the men who helped invent and popularize those guitars, Leo Fender and Les Paul, well, they're not sure what to make of the wild new sounds. Guitarists like Hendrix, Keith Richards, and Eric Clapton will push them in directions their creators never dreamed of. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? 
Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S. And Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In our last episode, the Fender Stratocaster revolutionized the way electric guitars are made and helped usher in a new era of rock and roll music. But just as electric guitar sales were at an all-time high, Leo Fender shocked the music business by selling his company to CBS for a record $13 million. Backed by CBS's corporate muscle and endorsed by high-profile artists like Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, Fender is dominating the electric guitar market like never before, but they're about to get competition from an unlikely source, a guitar their chief rival stopped making years ago. The Gibson Les Paul is about to come roaring back, sparking a new era of competition between the world's two biggest guitar makers. This is Episode 4, Les Paul's Unleashed. In the summer of 1966, someone knocks at the front door of guitarist Les Paul's New Jersey home. At 51, he's more or less retired from music and doesn't get many visitors. He opens the door to find a young man with long hair standing on his porch. The man stares at Paul, wide-eyed. Are you Les Paul? Yes, uh, what can I do for you? I'd like to buy one of your guitars, man. I've been hunting for a Les Paul all over. Paul realizes the kid thinks he actually makes the guitars himself. (laughs) Sorry, kid. Gibson discontinued the Les Pauls five years ago. I don't have any to sell to you. But why are you so eager to get your hands on one anyway? Dude, it's what Eric Clapton plays. A few days later, Paul walks into a nearby record store and checks the name he asked the hippie kid to write down for him. Uh, excuse me, have you got anything by, uh, Eric Clapton? The clerk flips through the blues section and pulls out an LP. On the back cover, there's a photo of Clapton, a 21-year-old guitarist from England, tuning a guitar with a lit cigarette stuck between its strings. Though the guitar is only partly visible, Paul can see by its shape. It's a Gibson Les Paul. Paul takes the album home, puts it down on his turntable for a listen, and he can't believe what he's hearing. Somehow this young Clapton hotshot has made his guitar sound like a freight train. The tone is thick and growling, heavily distorted. It's not really Paul's cup of tea, but he can see why that young hippie kid was so excited by it. The energy and passion behind Clapton's playing is undeniable. Paul asks around and is astonished to find that blues and rock guitarists like Clapton, Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, 
they're all playing Gibson Les Pauls. Somehow, this discontinued guitar has become a prized commodity to an entire new generation of guitarists. So much so, in fact, that they're becoming almost impossible to find. So why hasn't Gibson put them back into production? In the fall of 1966, Paul goes to visit Gibson's owner, M.H. Berlin, at his lavish home in a leafy Chicago suburb. Paul jumps right in to pleading his case. Gibson needs to start making Les Paul guitars again. Oh, I don't think that's a good idea, Les. The electric guitar market has peaked. At least for Gibson it has. Most of our sales these days are of acoustic instruments. It's this new folk music. It's all the rage. But I'm telling you, these new rock players are all playing Les Pauls. They're paying top dollar for old used ones. I had a kid come to my house trying to buy one. Sure, because they're collector's items. They wouldn't pay that much for new ones. Believe me, <laughs> we've done the market research. But Paul won't let the matter drop. He sends Berlin example after example of new blues and rock records that feature guitarists playing vintage Les Pauls. Finally, after a year, he wears down the executive. Berlin puts the Les Paul back into production. Chicago, June 23, 1968. The first day of the National Association of Music Merchants Trade Show. Paul arrives at the Gibson showroom to a round of applause from fans. He steps up to a microphone and addresses the crowd packed into the small showroom. I'd just like to say thank you to all the fans who never gave up on the Gibson Les Paul guitar. Because of you and guitarists like Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page, it's back and better than ever. But don't take my word for it. Judge for yourself. A Gibson salesman hands Paul a shiny new gold-top Les Paul guitar. He plugs it into a small amp and begins to play. The music trade magazines give a thumbs up to the reissued Gibson Les Paul, and that triggers a demand for the resurrected guitar, the first 500 sellout in just a few months. By the following year, Gibson is making a hundred Les Paul guitars a day. Meanwhile, the guitar's leading competitor, Fender Stratocaster, is more popular than ever. Rock stars like Jimi Hendrix and Pete Townsend of The Who make the Stratocaster into rock's most iconic guitar, sometimes by destroying them. Santa Monica, California, August 28, 1968. At a cavernous concert hall called the Civic Auditorium, British rock band The Who are finishing up another frenetic, high-energy show. Townsend, in bell-bottom jeans and a sweat-soaked t-shirt, strums his white Stratocaster in a wild windmill motion, his signature move. Then he busts out another move he's done dozens of times. Townsend swings the Strat like a baseball bat, knocking over his mic stand. Then he lifts it above his head and slams it down against the stage floor. The guitar's body splinters, sending pieces skidding across the stage. Roadies and security guards push back fans as they surge forward, trying to grab scraps of the shattered Strat. The next day, Leo Fender picks up the newspaper and opens it to a photo of Townsend in mid-swing. He shakes his head. What the hell? I don't get it. 
He's confused. I mean, why would someone buy a Stratocaster and then just wreck it like that? But it's not his problem anymore. Leo's gone into semi-retirement. Officially, he still works at Fender as a design consultant, but he and his wife Esther spend most of their time aboard their yacht, sailing out to Catalina Island off the Southern California coast or up the coast to Alaska. Leo's got a hankering to improve the electric guitar's design, just not for CBS, the big corporation to which he sold Fender in 1965. When his five-year contract is up in 1971, he'll get back to making guitars again. At Fender, or as it's now officially called the CBS Musical Instruments Division, employees churn out guitars in a state-of-the-art 120,000-square-foot factory. But they feel a bit like cogs in an assembly line instead of the artisans they were under Leo Fender. The old-timers occasionally commiserate in the break room. They want me to inspect 200 guitars a day now. 200! I barely have the time to glance at them. I know how you feel. When I started here making Telecasters, we learned every stage of the manufacturing process, and now I just spray on the lacquer finish. God, it's boring. What about the uh, polyester undercoat? Nope, somebody else does that. Don't even get me started about that polyester. You heard how it dulls the guitar sound? Leo never would have let that stuff anywhere near his guitars. They use that crap because it's durable and cheap. It's not just the factory workers who are frustrated with Fender's new owners. Fender's president, Don Randall, is also getting fed up with CBS. He was the one who convinced Leo Fender to sell CBS in the first place and got a sweet deal himself. But now he's realizing the corporate world isn't for him. Oh, sure, he has a fancy corner office on both coasts and flies first class. But it's getting harder to enjoy the perks as he watches quality slip. Finally, in April of 1969, Randall's had enough. He calls his boss, CBS Records president Goddard Lieberson. Lieberson's a British veteran of the music industry, stern and patrician. They don't have a particularly friendly relationship, so Randall skips the small talk. Look, Goddard, uh, CBS has been very good to me. No complaints there. I just don't like their way of doing business. I want out of my contract. I'm very sorry to hear that, Don, but I'm not going to stop you. I accept your resignation. Randall is stunned at how quickly the conversation is over. The CBS Records boss seems only too happy to cut him loose. Within weeks, Randall leaves Fender's Fullerton headquarters for the last time, part of a slow exodus of employees from the Leo Fender era. Fender's slipping quality standards may be unpopular with guitar purists and even its own employees, but they're not hurting the company's bottom line. Fender remains a cash cow for CBS, generating sizable profits every year. But the same can't be said of Fender's leading rival. Despite the success of the reissued Gibson Les Paul, overall sales of Gibson guitars are down. Gibson's owner, M.H. Berlin, has been phasing himself out of the company's day-to-day operations, getting ready to retire, and he's groomed a successor, his own son, Arnie. Now... Arnie has a plan to save his business. Just like Fender, he's going to sell it to a larger corporation, 
But when a buyer emerges, it's not the kind of company anyone in the music industry was expecting. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's December 1969, and in a conference room in New York City, a group of executives and their attorneys are signing the papers on a major transaction, the sale of Chicago Musical Instruments and its largest subsidiary, Gibson, to a multinational corporation called ECL. Chicago Musical Instruments President Arne Berlin and ECL's chairman, Norton Stevens, are sitting next to each other at a large conference table. They're old friends, fellow classmates at Harvard Business School, and the mood is celebratory. Both sides see it as a win-win. ECL takes ownership of one of the most prestigious brands in the music industry, and Gibson gets a corporate savior to reverse its declining profits. Berlin signs the last of the paperwork and passes it to Stevens. Congratulations, Nort. You now own the world's greatest guitar company. Thanks, Arnie. Pleasure doing business with you. An assistant passes out cigars, and the lawyers and executives light up, filling the conference room with plumes of smoke. Berlin pulled Stevens aside. Have you thought about what I said about changing the name? I have, and I agree. Now would be a good time to do that. ECL stands for Ecuadorian Company Limited. The name is a bit misleading. ECL is actually a British company, a conglomerate with subsidiaries that make beer, cement, and aircraft parts. Stevens recognizes ECL needs a more modern-sounding name. What if we combined our two last names? Stevlin, maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, Bourbons? I like the idea, but, but those names are terrible. What about Norlin? Norton plus Berlin, right? Yeah, Norlin. That has a nice ring to it. Berlin stays on as chairman of the newly named Norlin's Musical Instrument Division. But he lacks his father's knack for the business. As Gibson's losses mount, the company starts tinkering with its manufacturing process using cheaper materials and production methods. Berlin's advisors assure him the average guitar player will never notice the changes. But they're wrong. It's summer, 1974. 
and in a suburban garage in Minnesota, an amateur rock band is warming up. Four men in their early 20s with long hair and ripped blue jeans are passing around a joint tuning their guitars. Band's fifth member arrives, the rhythm guitarist. He carries a brand new guitar case which he eagerly opens to show off its contents. Hey, check it out, guys. I got the new Gibson Les Paul Custom. This is just like the one Jimmy Page plays. <laughs> wow, it's beautiful, man. What'd you pay for it? Got it on layaway for 600 bucks. Worth every penny. But the band's older lead guitarist is not impressed. You got ripped off, man. Those new Gibsons are garbage. What are you talking about? They have thinner layers of wood in the body, and the neck is made of laminate instead of hardwood mahogany. Plus, yours has quieter pickups. Okay, okay, you convinced me. I'll take it back tomorrow and get a Stratocaster instead. Oh man, the new Strats are even worse. I hear the necks come loose after just a few weeks. The lead guitarist is exaggerating a bit. The new Les Pauls and Strats aren't that big of a step down from the vintage models. But in guitarist circles, his opinions are widely shared. By the end of the decade, most serious players seek out late 50s Les Pauls and so-called pre-CBS Stratocasters. And Fender and Gibson don't just compete with their own past products. The market for new guitars is still hot. Competitors see an opening as Fender and Gibson appear to be on the decline. Even Leo Fender gets back into the game. In 1979, he launches a new company called GNL with his old colleague George Fullerton, the man who co-designed the Telecaster. They keep their production runs limited, producing only a few thousand guitars each year. Leo doesn't want to repeat what he sees as his biggest mistake at Fender, losing control of the company by letting it get too big, too fast. G&L guitars look suspiciously like Stratocasters, but with Leo's latest innovations in hardware and electronics and better materials than those used by Fender under CBS ownership. Publicly, Leo is careful never to disparage the company that still bears his name, but privately, he insists that Stratocasters and Telecasters are obsolete. The existence of a market for vintage guitars baffles him. So does the fact that Fender has barely made any changes to his original designs, except those aimed at reducing costs. As far as he's concerned, each new guitar he designs is an improvement on the last, a step closer to a perfect guitar that still exists only in his head. Compared to dynamic new companies like G&L, Many in the music industry view both Fender and Gibson as dinosaurs, legacy brands that haven't improved on their core products in decades. To survive, they'll need to reinvent themselves yet again. But how? On the next episode, both Fender and Gibson get new owners and to build for the future, they'll look to the past. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe while you're at it. 
Another way you can support us is by going over to Wondery.com survey and answering a few questions. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. Now, we can't know exactly what was said, but the dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Andy Herman wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost and Donna Hyams edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman, sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marsha Louie, created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hi, I'm Brooke. And I'm Arisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich. So I want you to imagine you're about to go on stage and perform in front of 30,000 cheering fans. You pop a cough drop, take some deep breaths, tell yourself, you can do this. And that's when your brother steps into your dressing room. He tells you the police are here. Either you clean up your act or you'll get arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But you just laugh and say good, because the you in this story is Madonna. You're going to give the police a moment they'll never forget. Ooh, so what happens next? If you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the newest season of Even the Rich, The Making of Madonna. Follow on Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.